Let's open our Bibles to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 4. We have a new year before us. We want to examine ourselves. We want to see if God can show us that we have a destiny that we ought to fulfill for His honor and glory and the sake of His kingdom. We do not believe that there are accidents or chance with the Most High. There may be accidents or chance from our viewpoint, but not from His. Our sister Esther has been made queen of the Persian Empire. When you read the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, came into the presence of Ahasuerus, And Nehemiah had a sad look on his face because he was worried about the city and temple of Jerusalem. It says the queen was sitting by him in parentheses. I want you to know who that queen is. Amen. That queen is our sister Esther. Right. She was made queen, but there was an enemy of the Jews in the Persian capital named Haman. And Haman, through subtlety and through extortion and a bribe, had got King Ahasuerus to make a decree and approve it that all the Jews would be annihilated on a certain date. Mordecai, when he perceived what was done, which is chapter 4, knew that it was a very serious situation. He sent for Esther and told her what she ought to do, and that's to go in and beseech the king for mercy for her, her people. Now here's what he had to say in verse 14 as he tried to persuade Esther to do this. I'm going to read verse 12. I'll start at verse 12. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdeth thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? What a strong, persuasive argument there in verse 14. If you hold your peace and you do not expose yourself and take the risk of approaching your husband the king, there will deliverance arise from some other source because Mordecai knew that God was going to deliver his people. We're going to get delivered one way or another. But if we get delivered, I mean, when we get delivered, if you haven't helped us, God's judgment's going to be upon you, and the judgment of our nation's going to be upon you for not having helped us when you're in the most beneficial situation to help. And then he said this, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Would God have helped her win a beauty contest and become a man's wife, and lived with that man for 50 years for such a time as this? Could the Lord have done that? Amen. Amen. And you need to be asking yourselves right now, for a few minutes, why am I alive in 2006 and 2007? Does God have a purpose for me in the perilous times of the last days? We don't have a Haman. We have the whole world. We don't have just the world. We have much of Christianity that has declared war against the things we hold dear. Why are you alive right now? I believe that this verse ought to challenge us that God has chosen in His 
sovereign will that we have a role to play in holding fast the ancient landmarks that I preached before I went to Malaysia, in defending the truth and holding against the perilous times of the last days. As her cousin said to her, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? We should look at our circumstances and ask the same question. How can we not believe that? That we were born in one of the most perilous times of Christianity. Perilous times for Christianity has not been a time of martyrdom. Martyrdom makes good Christians. Persecution makes good Christians. Prosperity makes terrible Christians. Compromise makes terrible Christians. We have an opportunity in this church, our homes, our families, our marriages, our own personal lives, through our website and all the contacts that we have, to take a stand for the truth of God, apostolic religion, in a day of total compromise. Let's do it. God's chosen us for it. We were born in this time. We've been given witty inventions to contact the world in ways that the apostles couldn't do. Let's use them. We've been given a church, and we've been taught much, and we're committed. But let's be even more committed. And let's realize that God has made a choice for our birthplaces and our birth times to be in this country at this time when we face a great calamity in Christianity. And that's its compromise in the worldly, the worldly brand and effeminate brand of Christianity that now plagues our nation. Don't forget these words. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knoweth that you are alive in 2007 for the purpose of standing up for the faith once delivered to the saints and earnestly contending for it against all those who would drag it down and destroy it? May the Lord raise up this church one by one in its membership to understand the role that God has given us and let's live it out. And as Joab once said to his brother, as they went into battle with two separate armies, he said, let's play the men for our God and for our city. Let's play the men. Let's do the best we can and trust the Lord to bless our efforts. Turn over a, a few books of the Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is another case with a similar situation. 1 Samuel 17 is the story of David killing Goliath. Praise the Lord for a man like David. When David got out there in that valley and saw the giant coming toward him, what did he do? Did he stand there and wait for the giant to come toward him or did he run to meet him? David ran to meet him. Oh, I had fun telling the people in Malaysia, you know, how this Bible story come up? Well, who killed Goliath in your Bible? Every false version available today has Elhanan, the son of Jerorgim, a Bethlehemite, killing Goliath in 2 Samuel 21.19. Do you know why David took five stones? Because he thought he was going to miss with the first four? Because he thought he might miss with the first four? Or because Goliath had four brothers? Amen! I'll take the whole family down, one at a time. 1 Samuel chapter 17, David's a keeper of sheep. His father has sent him to greet his brothers that are in the army. He's taken some cheese and some other goodies for his brothers and for their captain. He's going to get a promise out of that captain to uh, try to take good care of those brothers. 
old Jesse. He wanted to keep as many sons as he could in this battle. David's there among the men, scurrying around, fulfilling his errand. He hears Goliath come out and blaspheme the God of Israel. Now I know that if there's a problem, I'm speaking to, to a general audience. And David was an exceptional man. Amen. And the difference between the words general and exceptional are great. But I would to God, and I do pray, and I do work, that every one of you men and women would be like David. David had a soul that when he heard an uncircumcised Philistine, he didn't care how big he was. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. David didn't care. But when he heard Goliath blaspheming the God of Israel, fury rose up in his heart. Zeal rose up in his heart. Someone needs to do something. And I would to God that every one of us would have that reaction to what's happening in the world. You go to Psalm 119, David said, Rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not thy commandments. As we see the commandments of God forsaken in the churches of Jesus Christ, I don't mean the nation. Forget them. They've been lost from the beginning. This isn't a Christian nation. We're talking about churches of Jesus Christ and saints. As they compromise, it should cause rivers of water to run down our eyes, and it should provoke zeal in our hearts. David heard it. Then David heard from the men that were standing around him that if any man would kill Goliath, Saul would make his family tax-free in the nation of Israel. He'd get a daughter and all sorts of blessings. And David had a response to that. First Samuel 17 and verse 29. Is there not a cause... That question at the last part of verse 29. But before we can even give, before I can even explain those words, come back to verse 28. Because David is going around and asking the soldiers beside him, what did you say is going to happen to the man that kills Goliath? And they listed all of these rewards to David. There didn't need to be a reward. Who's going to get down there and cut his head off and shut his mouth? David didn't need a reward. And to have rewards tacked onto it, David David was looking around wondering why an army of a 100,000 men or, or whatever could stand still right. when there was such an event going on. Are you going to stand still in 2007 or as fathers, as husbands, as sons, daughters, wives, as employees, as masters, as church members? Are we going to stand up and be counted for God? How do we know that God had, did not choose your birth date and your birthplace to fight against the collapse of Christianity in the United States of America. We have got to have a church that is faithful and families that are faithful and marriages that are faithful to the Lord. When Eliab, the oldest brother of David, heard, this is verse 28, that he spake unto the men, Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. Thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? His oldest brother picks on him, rebukes him, criticizes him, mocks him for his zeal to even be asking, What's going to happen to the man who kills Goliath? And this is what's going to happen. If you take a stand, there are going to be other Christians around you that may not 
understand or want to take a stand themselves. And they'll even accuse you of doing it out of pride. This is not pride. When you see someone blaspheming God and blaspheming the religion of God and you want to go put them out of their misery, that isn't pride. That is humility and love for the kingdom of God. And David had that. There was no pride in David's heart. He loved his Lord and he wanted to do something about it. Eliab didn't love the Lord like David did. And Eliab considered him strange and rebuked his little brother because it was a shame, it was shaming to him to have his little brother want to go do something he should have done as the oldest brother. And we will run into opposition. You will be accused of false motives. You will be accused of pride. You will be accused of leaving your ordinary life to do something extraordinary. But how do you know that you were not born to live in 2007 to be part of a very small remnant that will hold to the truth of God in these last days? A few moments on this subject. America and so-called Christianity... In it are collapsing and imploding downward to total destruction. The Roman Empire and all empires before it collapsed in the very same way. Our nation and the, most of the churches in our nation are collapsing. I recently spent many weeks with you in the ancient landmarks of our faith, very provoked down in Georgetown, South Carolina, at the zeal of a, of a William and an Elisha Screven for the truth of God. They'd been persecuted. See, persecution makes better Christians than prosperity. Prosperity makes lazy and fat ones. And we don't need to be lazy and fat in serving our Lord. When David arrived at that battle, he couldn't understand how anyone could hear the taunts against God's religion. How much do you love the Lord Jesus Christ and how much does that love drive your life? Are you going to take a stand and keep together this church and any other church that you might be part of and help every brother that comes across your path? You know, the Bible tells us that we are to consider one another, to provoke unto love and to good works. We are to exhort one another, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. One by one, if we will strengthen each other, we can be like a David, we can be like an Esther, and we can take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in a declining day. We've been called to a conflict and a form of worship far superior to Goliath and the Old Testament. As we view these perilous times that we live in, we should consider well that God has chosen us to live in them. This is not something that we're reading about in history. We're reading about it in our newspapers. We're reading about it when we drive past their churches. We read about it when we turn on for a few minutes a religious television channel. And we can see all the mega church, the mega churches across this country, the seeker sensitive movement. And we realize something has drastically happened in my little lifetime. When I was a little boy, When you went to a Baptist church, you were expected to hear the Bible thumped and someone pounding out of a pulpit about living a godly life in my little, my short little life. It's happened, it's happened in the last century. We are in the middle of a free fall. But let's take a stand. And I hope everyone will remember all those ancient landmarks. I'm not going to mention them. But I hope you'll remember every day when we get up, we face several of those landmarks in a day's time. And we need to take a stand for them. Look at Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel 22. I know the day's been long. I know you're tired. I know that this place sounds like an infirmary. 
But if you'll hold on for a few minutes, we'll look at a few verses and see if the Holy Spirit of God can't convict our hearts that we live in 2007 for a reason. A reason. A destiny. To be faithful in the earth in the spite of great opposition. To be a very small remnant. Ezekiel chapter 22. This verse is why I am in the ministry. Though I wish I had fulfilled it a whole lot better than I have, and though I intend to fulfill it a whole lot better than I have. Ezekiel 22:30, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. That is a terrible verse. When the Lord came down looking at Israel to see if there were righteous men there that would hold off Nebuchadnezzar, he couldn't find them. Now, there were a few, but there were not enough. He was looking for a man. And there was, there was a Jeremiah. There was an Ezekiel. There was a Daniel. But there weren't enough. And so God sent Nebuchadnezzar, his servant, to overrun that land, ravish the women, take the city, destroy the temple, and level it. What's going to happen to the churches of America? We cannot be responsible for all of them, but we can certainly be responsible for this one. We can certainly be responsible for the contacts God gives us in person or through our website. We can be responsible for our families and our children and our children's children. And we should be applying ourselves as diligently as we can. When you read a verse or you hear a verse like Ezekiel 22.30, does it provoke you? Does it convict you? Does it stir you? I can't stir you. The Lord's got to stir you. His Word's got to stir you. This verse should stir you. You should be saying to yourself, I want to be that man. Is there not a cause? Where are the men like Phinehas who will grasp a situation and then grab it? You know, there was a weeping prayer meeting going on in Israel. Are you familiar with it? You can turn there. Numbers 25. I won't read long there. Numbers chapter 25. Phinehas is a great man. I've, we've preached about him before. We've read about him before. But this man ought to stir your soul. The Lord gave him a blessing at the end of Numbers. And in Psalm 106, it's a wonderful blessing. The Lord said about him, I give unto him my covenant of peace. Oh, what I love the Lord to say to me. I've given to Jonathan Crosby my covenant of peace. He shall have it and his seed after him even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Now, do you know what kind of an atonement he made? Did he bring a, did he bring a lamb to the altar? Did he bring an ox to the altar? Oh, no. He went into a thrashing tent with a javelin, while the rest of Israel stood bawling about the sad case, the sad times that we live in, with the collapse of religion, as they watched the Moabite daughters come into camp and fornication take place on a widespread basis. There's a prayer meeting going on, and they're bawling about it. Verse 6, And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses, and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They've gone to the right place, They're doing something noble. Rivers of waters are running down their cheeks. They're upset about the sin that's going on. 
But there is a different response, and it's in verse 7. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And you can go on and read about the blessing here and the blessing in Psalm 106. Does this stir you? There was God raised up a man named Phinehas that wasn't just going to cry about the situation. He was going to do something, and he was going to do something severe, and he was going to do it now. He didn't say, I need to pray about this, and maybe the Lord will lead me in a month or two to check into this whoredom problem we've got in the camp. He saw a tent moving around in a way that it shouldn't. He knew who was inside, and he took a javelin, and he ended it. And the plague was stopped right there. And the Lord said about him, in verse 11, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Why should we get up in the morning and eat, go to work, come home, eat, and go to bed? To get up in the morning, to go to work, to eat, to go to work, to come home, to eat, and to go to bed. Why should we live our lives like that and be, end up being worm food anyway? If we're going to do something, then let's do something for the Lord. Amen. Let's have a life that counts. We have a year before us. We live in the perilous times. God's made the choice. Just like Esther, she was there for a reason. Like David, he was on an errand at that point in time for a reason. Do you think that was an accident? Do you think that was an accident that David arrived in the battlefield when Goliath happened to come out? He happened to hear him? Oh, no. Not with the God I worship from this Bible. And you weren't born in the, and you weren't here in the year 2006 and 2007 for a purpose otherwise. Since we, do you know how much we have been convicted about 2 Timothy chapter 3? Do you know how often I've brought that to your attention? Do you know how often I mention the perilous times? Because I am convicted without ceasing about the perilous times that we live in. It's a plain warning in the Bible, and we're living in the fulfillment of that prophecy. God has chosen us. You say, I'm just not special enough to be chosen by God. For... Then get special. Do whatever you've got to do. Let's get busy for the Lord. Amen. We've got a year coming. Before this day's out, you're going to be tempted with things. Let's do it with our might for the Lord's sake. Let's keep this very small remnant going here. Let's press forward. Let's see if there are others that we can encourage and provoke to keep up the fight in their respective places. Brethren, there were 431 emails in my inbox when I got home, and some of them were precious indeed. There was a Macedonian call from a church in Scotland that a pastor was just discovered in a strict Baptist church in Scotland celebrating Christmas on the side with his wife, though preaching against it in the pulpit. And one of the elders' wives wrote us because of our website and what it says about Christmas and said this is a Macedonian call for help. The church is being turned upside down on its ear because we have stood against Christmas and we find that our pastor is not standing against it. Do you know what a Macedonian call is? It's Acts chapter 16 where the man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. There was a church in Australia that wrote and said, the only way we're staying together and what we're living on and feeding on is the website of LetGodBeTrue.com. Let's help keep these small little bands of Christians in various places together. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Let's help him find faith. Let's be faithful first. 
And with all those contacts that God brings our way, brethren, what an opportunity. Did you ever want a life that could amount to something? Mordecai told his cousin that she, had, she could have a life that amounted to something. David knew he, could have, he didn't care about amounting to something. He just wanted to make the Lord something. But what about you? What about me? We have, we have a year before us. Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful. Look at Ezekiel chapter 9. Can you find that book again? I know. I heard the pages rustling. We went to it once. We went to chapter 22. Now let's go to Ezekiel 9. Do you, brethren, remember that a few years ago I came back from a vacation, wound up a little bit on the angel and the inkhorn in Ezekiel chapter 9? I just want to remind you about that. We can't let sermons go out the back door. We've got to keep them there. Lock that door. Keep those sermons in your memory. You know what Ezekiel chapter 8 is about? It's about the abominations being perpetrated in the religion and worship of God in Jerusalem, including a sunrise service in verses 15 and 16, where there were five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun in the east. If you're worshiping the sun in the east, what time of day is it, David Bickle? If you're worshiping the sun in the east, what time of day is it? I know I put you on the spot. Listen, that is just terrible when a, when a preacher does that. Listen, you may not even know your middle name right now, but... I know the conversation we had a few minutes ago about being David. It's morning time. When the sun's in the east, it's morning time, so they were having a sunrise service. This is one of the abominations of Ezekiel 8. Don't worry about that. All the other young people in this church have done it in your absence. Some of the adults, too. Amen. Amen. I do it just to keep everyone awake. I don't want to be foolish in the, in the pulpit of the Lord at all, but I do want us to all be alert and thinking about what we're reading. Amen. Ezekiel 8 the abominations taking place in Jerusalem, not the abominations in Gath. You know, the Lord doesn't care about the abominations in Gath. He winked at all those abominations. It's the ones in Jerusalem. This is the collapse of the religion of God in His own nation. In Ezekiel 9, look at the first, the first verse. I'll read just a few. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Those are the angels of God that had the responsibility for the city of Jerusalem. Cause them to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the floor of the house. God is, God is getting busy. He is going to do something. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city, and smite. Let not your eye spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, 
and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. And he said unto them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. God had turned his own city, his worship, in Jerusalem over to angels with slaughter weapons in their hands. But before them went one angel with an inkhorn at his side. And you'll remember this making a mark on the foreheads of those that sighed by reason of all the abominations that were done. Is it tearing up your heart to see the churches of Jesus Christ collapsing and compromising with the world? Do you want to make a stand for it? Because this passage, this is, these are not the Philistines. These are not the Egyptians. These are the Israelites. These are the Jews of Jerusalem. And the angels with the slaughter weapons were to fill the house hit God's own sanctuary with the slain bodies. But there was an angel in front of them looking for any that had conviction about what was going on, that hated the compromise. Mark their foreheads and don't touch them. But anyone that doesn't have that mark, slaughter them. The Lord's people. The Lord's people. You know what it says in Hebrews chapter 10? The Lord shall judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is a God in heaven that hasn't changed one whit from the holy and just God of the Bible. And He will come and judge the people that are compromising His worship with the world. We have got to stand against them. Why are you alive right now? Who knoweth whether thou art come to the year 2007 for such a time as this? I think Mordecai would say that to us if he were here. There's no excuse for your past. There's no excuse. You know, Jephthah had a pretty bad background, didn't he? Jephthah. The son of a harlot. An illegitimate son. A bastard. Kicked out by his brothers. But guess what? He sold himself to serve the Lord his God, and he's by faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and his brothers are not. Because he zealously defended the cause of Israel against their enemies, And so he made the hall of faith while his brothers didn't, even if he was an illegitimate bastard son. Don't ever lose hope. There's nothing in your past. There's nothing in your origin. There's nothing in your family to keep you from being great in the sight of the Lord. The man with two talents, don't worry about how many talents you have. How are you using the ones you've got? I love to read Matthew 25 and compare the language of the Lord's commendation of the man with two talents and the Lord's commendation of the man with five talents. Did you know it's identical? The same praise and the same commendation. Because the man with two multiplied them into four. And the man with five multiplied them into ten. One man didn't do more than the other. They both were diligent in what God had given them. They both got a return on the grace and wisdom and knowledge that God had given them. It doesn't matter how many talents you have. It's how many talents you're using. How many talents you're investing. For the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no greater cause. I thought I preached that this morning. Though hidden wisdom of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are the greatest thing that you could be told. The true disciples of Jesus Christ are those who are going to keep His commandments in all things. What caused the Joseph? And many of these are in in your private life. You know, our public performance is never going to exceed our private performance. 
Hypocrisy can only... The joy... Job and his friends, they, they did discuss hypocrisy for a few chapters. The joy of the hypocrite is short. Job 20 and verse 5. What caused Joseph to resist Potiphar's warm embrace? The same words that caused David to get out there with his sling and no armor. Is there not a cause? There's a God in heaven. And He told me that you're off limits. That's what made Joseph do what he did. You know, we compare sometimes when we're in our men's meetings and we compare the lives of Joseph and David, we have to admit to ourselves that Joseph's a greater man than David. Because David saw the cause at some times and lost it at others. The Bible doesn't tell us about all the life of Joseph, but it tells us about that one event. Training children is not just a good idea. It's the perpetuation of truth through children. Your family can be the pillar and ground of the truth through your children. You know, King Hezekiah, when the Lord gave him 15 more years, do you know what the motive he had? What he was offering the Lord and why he wanted more time? The father. The father to the children shall tell forth thy truth. It's Isaiah 38 and verse 19. When Hezekiah was given those 15 extra years, he had a reason that he wanted to live longer. Loving the brethren and serving others is more than a nice-sounding concept. It's more than just making a church warm and friendly. It is to provoke them to love and to good works that none of us will turn away from the living God. It is that we will be faithful to the Lord Jesus until He comes. Those Thessalonian saints had turned from their idols to wait for God's Son from heaven. And that's what we want to help each other do without wavering. We are to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for faithful is He that promised, and consider one another to provoke them to also hold fast. Any and every Christian duty takes on a life and purpose of its own when you understand your destiny. And your destiny has been chosen by God, not by me, and I'm not trying to be melodramatic with this little sermon. How do you know? Mordecai asked. How do you know? that you haven't come to the kingdom for a time like this? I say, that rhetorical question was easily answered. Esther knew exactly why she was there. And you know what it says? She said, okay, we'll make a deal. We'll fast and pray three days and three nights, and I'll go in. And she went in. And praise the God of heaven. You know, we've never seen authority like that, have we? This is a wife and a queen that the king loved, but she still waited at that door. And when she stepped across that threshold, if he didn't twitch and raise that scepter, she was going down. They'd drop a bag over her head and take her right out of there. But he raised his scepter. And she went up and said, hey, how about lunch? Is that what she said? That's what she said. Now, she didn't get it all out at the first lunch, did she? She didn't get it all out at the first lunch. She said, can we do this again tomorrow? He said, yeah, we can do this again tomorrow. What's bothering you? I'll give you half the kingdom. And she worked her courage up and she said, it's this wicked Haman. The Lord is so glorious. Have you all read the book of Esther? It's this wicked Haman. Ahasuerus was so so angry he had to go out in the garden to get a breath of fresh air. He wanted to tear Haman's head off with his own bare hands. He went out in the garden to get a breath of fresh air. When he came back in, things went from bad to worse. Because there was Haman down on Esther's couch, on his knees, begging for his life, and it looked like he was making an advance on the king's wife. 
And the men stepped out from behind the drapes and dropped the bag over his head and took him to his own house and hung him on his gallows. Oh, Esther's a great book. Yeah, I know. The name of God isn't in the whole book. But God's in every chapter. The blessed God of heaven's in every chapter. Esther did something great and she saved her nation. You know, when on the day of Purr, they changed the circumstances a little bit. There was a reversal of fortune. Those that were going to kill the Jews were annihilated by the Jews. And that feast was kept as a perpetual remembrance of what God had done through one woman who got the conviction that maybe she had a destiny that was greater than being Mrs. Ahasuerus, that it was a woman that was going to stand for the things of God and the true worship of God and the people of God. Do you know why you ought to go to work on Tuesday? Do you know why you ought to work with all your might? Do you know why you ought to ask God in His providence to lead you to promotions if if those promotions can be handled by your soul? It's for you to have more for the kingdom of heaven. Can I prove that from a Bible? Ephesians chapter 4. It may be in Ezekiel, but I don't know where it is. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to remind you of something. If you have a great job or business, and there are some of you brothers in this church that God has blessed that way, God has given that job and business to you to fund His kingdom projects. I would say to you, how do you know that you have not come to your business or your profession or your job but for a time like this? You know, the means for us to be able to go and do what we did for a church in Malaysia was because God has raised up some of you to do something extraordinary in the professional, in your professional world. But you have a heart that does not make that, those riches dangerous for you because you want to give them away for the glory of Jesus Christ. What a combination. Barnabas had lands on the island of Cyprus, but he sold those and brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. Let's press forward with the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Notice, a motive for working hard is not for you to have more, but for others to have more around you. It's for you to be able to give to those that need. This provides an entirely different motive for working than any other motive. I can serve the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and how do I know that God hasn't given me this business, this cash cow business, for me to go to those teats every week and extract as much as I can from the utter of this business for the glory of God? And this is not promoting anyone or anyone's income or salary, and everyone in this church knows that. The purpose of my point right now is to find your destiny in line of the perilous times of the last day. And what can you fulfill? I know that some of you men have frustrating jobs. And the more frustrating, usually, you're getting paid more for it. And when you go and face that frustration, face it with the knowledge that you have have to answer the question of Mordecai. How do you know that you have not come to your business or your profession for a time like this? For God to support His efforts in spreading the truth throughout the earth and keeping this church and providing for those that need, as Ephesians 4.28 describes. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ was on earth, He was followed by a great company of women. Some of those women are named, and it says that they ministered to Him out of their substance. There were women that knew that the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven needed financial support, and they followed and they did it. 
And they fulfilled their destiny that God had given them because the means that one of them was the wife of Herod's steward. Now, that would have, they would have come in contact with a little bit of cash, being the wife of Herod's steward. And the same question has to be asked to that woman. How do you know that you weren't married and into the family of Herod's steward for a time like this? When they could minister to Jesus Christ and the apostles out of their substance, and those men could go and preach through the cities of Israel. If you don't have a great job or business, that doesn't make you less of a Christian and less of what you can do for the kingdom of heaven. Right. I, when I go back to First Kings ch- and, the, and the chapters there in, in the book of First Chronicles and the building of the temple by David and Solomon, I read about all the workmen and the bearers of burdens. You know, it doesn't matter how much money David had. David was not going to haul all those materials into Jerusalem himself. He might be able to buy them from Hiram, the king of Tyre, but someone was going to have to bear them. And so there is not a thing in the world wrong with being a burden bearer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound too low for you? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. David said, David would have gladly been a burden bearer. But God gave him something greater to fulfill. And it says, with all his might, he gathered till his death. Until he had accumulated... Go read the amount of, and I've preached this to you, and that wasn't that long ago. A thousand, thousand talents of silver and brass without number. David accumulated it with all his might because he had the means to do so. It's with, what, it's with the means God has given you that you should seek the kingdom of Jesus Christ. How could Anna, Anna in Luke chapter 2, give her life to fasting and prayer in the temple? Same reason David put five stones in his little shepherd's bag. Is there not a cause? Anna went to that temple and gave herself to fasting and prayer for the same cause. Do you delight in singing? Contrary to most worship today, is part of the cause. Singing. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When we open our hymnals, and we're going to do it in just a minute, and we sing, that is a way that we promote the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the earth. We've been put in a church that loves to sing. We don't go through the motions. We don't mumble. When my wife and I are on vacation, we go visit churches. We visit churches that are very large sometimes. Sometimes they're very conservative. Baptist churches. But all you can hear is the organ and the piano. And you wonder, what are these people thinking? But God's convicted us. This is one of the ancient landmarks. Let's love to sing His praise. His praise is glorious. And He deserves it. And it's comely for the upright to do it. As Brother Eric told you earlier today, hospitality isn't a burden. Hospitality is a privilege. If you've got a house and a table and a refrigerator with food in it, how do you know? That you don't have a house with a table and food in the refrigerator for a time like this. And so we show hospitality. You you get the bottom line now, don't you? You're supposed to walk out of these doors and remember one question. How do you know that you are not living in 2007 for a time like this? And you should be asking that about everything in your life. How do you know that God hasn't given you the job, the business, the house, the wife, the children, whatever abilities and skills you have? For the kingdom of Jesus Christ's sake, let us be like Esther and though very fearful, do a little fasting and prayer and self-examination and get in there and step across that threshold for the glory of God and the defense of her people and let the Lord do the rest. And he will do, he will do it well if we will do our part. If you lose your life for him and his cause, you'll find your life.
if you try to save your life and spend it in the little trinkets that the world wants you to think about, you're going to lose your life and amount to nothing. You'll be worm food and that's it. Lord God, do not let any of us that claim the name of Christ waste our lives that way. Pray to God to stir up your heart. You know, when I come across Ezra 1.1, and I see there that Cyrus made a decree, king of Persia, the Lord God hath stirred up my heart to build him a house for his name in Jerusalem. All of you Jews that want to go back and be part of it, you may leave the kingdom. I'll pay for it. Just go back and build him a house. The Lord God has stirred up my heart. Can we ask the Lord to stir up our hearts if our hearts are not stirred up enough to put his kingdom first? And to ask ourselves, is there not a cause? Am I alive in 2007? Because this would be the greatest calamity facing the church of Jesus Christ since the days of the apostles. By a compromise with the world that I can stand against in my home, my soul, my family, my marriage, and the church that God's put me in. I want to thank my Father for your daily efforts this past year of sending out that daily Bible reading page with questions to help fathers with their children through those chapters and points of meditation for them to think through those chapters. Thank you for serving the rest of this church doing that for the past year. I know it was a burden to you. I love you, and you always taught me to read the Bible. I'm sorry there were times where I didn't read it like I should have. But thank you for serving this church this past year doing that. I'm thankful for those of you that told me or told him that you were thankful for the help. For the year 2007, I have on the front table a page of memory verses. We did this about five years ago. Some of you have asked for this, so it's back by popular demand. Amen. There's a page down front that has 50 categories for the next 50 weeks of topics. 50 categories with four verses. If you can't memorize verses, then memorize one for each topic. If you can memorize a little better than that, pick two. If you're a real, a real glutton for punishment, pick four. And memorize four verses where you can categorize them by topics and be able to defend the faith by knowing the Word of God and hiding it in your heart. There are reading programs down here in the front table to help you through the Bible in 2007. Is there not a cause? How do we know that we're alive in 2007 but to read His Word and to find out more of the mysteries of hidden wisdom that are contained in it for ourselves, for our children, for our church, and for others as the Lord gives us opportunity. I hope that you will start this memory program tomorrow. You'll start a reading program of any sort. I don't care what kind. These are just to help you that we can hide the Word of God in our hearts. If the Lord will be merciful over the next six months, I'll finish the Proverbs Project, and we will have a commentary on every verse of Proverbs on the Internet. And when that finishes, we will begin a problem text project in very similar fashion where we deal with the more difficult verses of the Bible. 2007 is a year for opposing the perilous times, defending the ancient landmarks, glorifying the hidden wisdom that we spoke of this morning, and loving our Redeemer. What an opportunity. Let's love Him, and let's love those that are begotten of Him. 
Let's build this church and any other church that we might be associated with, directly or indirectly, to be faithful churches for the coming of Jesus Christ. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knoweth whether thou art come to the year 2007 for such a time as this? May the Lord challenge each of you and may you rise to the occasion to be like a David and say, is there not a cause? He didn't need the rewards. He said there's enough already standing out there. Let's go take his head off. You know, we don't have a Goliath to fight except in our own hearts. And the Goliath of compromise, but let's fight it. And let's be faithful. May the Lord bless us that He can find us faithful when the Son of Man cometh. Amen. Amen.